0: So, good morning, church. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Today, we are continuing uh, preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in uh, the passage that you just heard read, Hebrews 1, verses 4 through 14. Well, what comes into your guys' minds when I bring up the topic of angels? Angels. And that's not, a, we don't oftentimes talk about angels. So if you're new with us this morning or a guest here this morning, uh, this morning might feel a little weird because we don't talk about angels very often. But when we come to passages of Scripture that talk about angels, we're going to talk about angels. But, but what comes into your mind when I bring up the topic of angels? Uh, maybe some of you think about like a a cute little chubby baby with wings, right? Like kind of a Cupid esque angel that's kind of floating around, flying through the clouds. Uh, or maybe you see like a really sweet, cute uh, little girl, and you're like, "What what is she often described as? Oh, she's such an angel, right?" Like kind of cute and sweet, uh, or or maybe uh, what you think about angels has come through what you've learned from movies or television. Okay, and that's I think if we could be honest, that's most of what what us know about angels is what we've learned from movies or television, which make it make us very ill equipped to handle the passage today. Uh, but maybe you've seen things in the past like uh, like that TV show "Touched by an Angel." Do you guys remember that back in the '90s? Right, this uh, this lady's kind of going around. Helping people, I think she 's maybe a social worker and then and then you always know when someone 's about to die because there 's like the angel of death that will show up sometimes in certain scenes, and that 's like kind of clueing you in something bad 's going to happen, uh, or, or what about that movie uh, Angels in the outfield who 's seen Angels in the Outfield yeah Okay, and I'm not, I'm not recommending these, okay? Uh, This has been over 10 years since I've seen some of these, but Angels in the Outfield, I remember that one. You've got, uh, you've got some foster kids who, uh, he's praying for the angels to win the pennant because he wants his family to kind of be reunited and, and he can see angels helping these baseball players, right? And so anytime he sees an angel helping, he kind of stands out of the dugout and just starts like making the angel sign, right? And that gives the baseball players confidence. Like, okay, I got an angel helping me here, all right? Now listen, those are not going to uh, get us ready to handle this passage today, okay? So let's try to kind of put that out of our mind, everything that we've kind of known or seen or think of when we think about angels, because here's the problem, all right? Our view of angels is very different than the original recipients of Hebrews' view of angels was, okay? Uh, And and in our passage today, our author is essentially trying to show us that Jesus is is better than angels. That, that that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is more superior to angels. And we're like, okay, yeah, sounds good. You don't need to convince me. I'm I'm there, right? Like he's superior to a little chubby baby uh, with wings. Like, I'm, I'm there. Like, you don't need to—I don't need to go through a whole 40-minute sermon trying to convince you of that fact, all right? But the original audience of Hebrews, okay, they would have had a really high view of angels, okay? They would have, have had a really big interest and would have been captivated and intrigued by this concept of angels and almost to a fault where some of them were actually even worshiping angels or praying to angels or things like that. And anytime we bring up angelic beings, there's usually one or two errors that people can fall into, okay? Uh, the, the first is that they can become so enamored with the topic of angels and demons and celestial beings that they end up essentially kind of worshiping these created beings, which is never a good thing to do, okay? We never are to worship creation. We are only to worship Creator. Or, or maybe people in this camp, maybe they don't actually worship angels, but they can become so enamored with this idea of these spiritual beings that they attribute every little thing in life uh, to, hap- it's to be playing a part in spiritual warfare, right? So you've heard of the people who get a flat tire or they spill coffee on themselves and it's assumed that it's an attack of the enemy, of the devil on them in their life. And every little detail is attributed to this spiritual warfare or these angelic beings, All right, so that's that's one error people can fall into. But then the other error that people can fall into, and I think probably many of us are in more in this camp, we can swing the pendulum the other way and just ignore these angelic beings altogether. And, and just kind of ignore their existence and just try to kind of, you know, live in denial that that world is even out there. And probably most of us, I would say, are in that camp because we've been raised in a society that is trying to be ruled by rationalism. And we try to explain away miraculous things uh, that happen in our life and try to explain them away with things that can be seen or felt or touched. And so any sort of heavenly or unseen realm talk can make a lot of us uncomfortable. I mean, I'm uncomfortable, all right? I'm even uncomfortable talking about this, right? Because it's when you start talking about things that can't be seen in these angelic beings, I mean, it makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But the glorious thing about our passage this morning is that it is not going to allow for either one of these errors, okay? Uh, uh, we won't be able to ignore the existence of angels because uh, this book of the Bible, Hebrews, is going to bring the, this topic up. But we also won't be able to be so captivated with them that we're tempted to worship them or think too highly of them. Because the point, really, of studying angels, the point of it, of understanding how amazing they actually are, is to be able to understand and take comfort in the fact of how powerful and how great and how glorious Jesus is. Okay, and so today we'll talk about how angels are amazing, but Jesus is better. He's greater. He's more superior. He's even more amazing. And so any study of angels has to end up with you glorifying Christ and enjoying Him more. If not, that's idolatry. All right? It's the worship of creation over creator. And the same truth can be said with the study of any created thing. The study of any created thing has to end up with us glorifying Christ and enjoying Him more. Okay? And so church, uh, today we're going to see that angels are pretty amazing, uh, but the Bible does not teach, uh, because listen, th- they are, they, the Bible does not teach that angels are like these cute little chubby babies with wings, all right? It, it, let's, just, let's just dispel that, that false teaching and that false idea right now. Okay, and we know this. We know this uh, because angels, typically in the Bible, when they encounter human beings, they have to lead with something. They have to say something when they first encounter a human being. And, and what do they usually have to say? They usually have to say, "Yeah, fear not. Do not be afraid." All right. If if every time you walk into a room, you have to lead with, "Fear not." All right, just just this is just some uh, just life coaching for you. Like you might be kind of put be putting off a little bit of an intimidating presence when you come into a room. If every time you have to say "Fear not," right? And so these are not cute little chubby babies entering rooms and encountering human beings. These must be beings that are amazing and glorious and intimidating. All right, they have to say "Fear not." And so let's let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump into this passage. And let's ask for his help, uh, that we might understand how angels are amazing, how Jesus is better, and how we should then not fear, because as Jesus sits on his throne, he sends to us some powerful help. All right, so let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Uh, Father God, this, this is your word, Lord, and we do not want to take this lightly. Uh, but Lord, we, we acknowledge that, that we come to this text with a lot of weaknesses and deficiencies in, in trying to understand what, what you are teaching us here as we learn about these angels that you have created. So Spirit, I ask that you would move powerfully in us, that you would give me the right words to speak, that I would only speak your truth and that it would be your truth that would stick with us and, and take deep root in our hearts. Uh, Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to, to hear your truth, that it would be transformative, that it would bear fruit in our lives. And so we ask for your help. We ultimately want to glorify Christ. We ultimately want to enjoy him more. And so I ask that this preaching of your word and this receiving of your word, that this would be a worshipful experience that would stir up in us a greater love for you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 1. Verse 4. Last week, you remember, we talked about how Jesus is the powerful word that silences all struggle for power, okay? And, and we, that was verses 2 through 3. And just in case you weren't quite convinced of how powerful Jesus is, here our author is going to go to multiple now Old Testament passages— to put together a a defense of this, an argument of this. He's going to ask us some rhetorical questions along the way, all in an attempt to teach us where Jesus ranks in this hierarchy of power and authority that exists in our world, okay, and in the universe. So let's look at Hebrews 1, verse 4. Hebrews 1, verse 4. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right, let's stop there for a second. And let's, uh, as we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews, you'll notice that as we go through it, there's a lot of Old Testament quotes in here, Okay. And this is one of the reasons we picked the book of Hebrews to go through, is that it's going to be a great way for us to learn more of our Old Testament and to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect. And so when you're reading this, you'll notice that probably in most of your Bibles, there will be portions that are indented or kind of offset from the other text. And that's typically a direct quote from the Old Testament. And if you have a study Bible or, or regardless of really your Bible, there should be a little reference there or a letter or something that you can look off in the margin and see what what Old Testament text it is quoting. And so this is what I'd encourage you guys for the next uh, few months while we're in Hebrews. When you on your own are reading this text, go back then and read the Old Testament passages that he is quoting, all right? The book of Hebrews has been called uh, the, like an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Right? You've heard of commentaries. they are human beings, theologians, pastors that write these commentaries to help you study God's word. But here we have a New Testament book of the Bible that is in, in, like an inspired commentary. I mean, other commentaries, they, they have faults, they have errors, they have opinions, but this is God's word, and this is God's word helping us understand what God spoke in back in the Old Testament, okay? And so right away, here in verse 5, we see our author quote from Psalm chapter 2, And then from 2 Samuel 7, and we're not going to go to all these today for the sake of time, okay? But those would be great passages for you to read on your own this week. And what our author here is trying to do is trying to show us that Jesus is superior to angels because he has been given a better name than the angels. He's been given a better name. Even I think in that first song, uh, we sang about Jesus's name, right? There's something about that name that is exalted and superior than any other being in the universe. So let's understand this concept of his name being so great. Okay, Names in the ancient world were really important. All right? Now we kind of just pick what we think sounds the best or what kind of goes with what we named our other kids or things like that. Right, but, but names in the ancient world, they were really important. A name was thought to declare and reveal a person's uh, essence and their nature and their character. And it could even speak to their authoritative status and power. So names were really important. And so this this name that Jesus has inherited, it's it's speaking to us something about his nature and his status and his authoritative rank. And our author is saying that this name is greater than the angel's. Now, angels have been given names, all right? But Jesus has been given a far superior one. And so when you read uh, your Bibles, you'll notice that lots of different names are given for angels, okay? Our biblical writers, anytime they're speaking of these angelic beings, you'll notice that they'll sometimes call them uh, holy ones, or they'll call them spirits, or watchers, or thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or authorities, Uh, Sometimes in your Bible, you'll see them more specifically named as cherubim or seraphim or living creatures, or sometimes they're even called sons of God. But none of the angels has been given this name, capital S, son of God. And here, Hebrews is helping us connect Old and New Testament to understand that the name that Jesus has inherited And he has inherited this name, capital S, Son of God. So look with me now at verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. A quote from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, it was a well-known messianic psalm. All right, which was speaking of this one day forever anointed king that was to come. The psalm starts off with telling us how the kings of the earth and the rulers of spiritual forces had set themselves against the Lord. The Lord is not fearful about this. The Lord actually in Psalm 2 responds with laughter. He laughs at this uh, uh, rising up of other powers. And he says that, no, his anointed king to come will inherit the nations and the ends of the earth will be his possession. That's Psalm 2, 7 and 8. And so now because of the book of Hebrews, because of this inspired commentary, we can look back at Psalm 2 and say, hey, Psalm 2 is ultimately talking about Jesus. Why? Because Grant said it is? No, because God's word said it is. And then Hebrews goes on to quote 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, where the prophet Nathan is telling David that he's going to have a son that will build a house for God and will establish a kingdom that will last forever. And as, with, as is the case with most biblical prophecy, there's a partial fulfillment with David's son Solomon. But then Hebrews is teaching us that there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment of this everlasting kingdom when Christ sits on his throne. And so here in Hebrews, he's putting these two together, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And here we have uh, the Son of God, capital S, Son of God, but who's also the Son of Man because he's in the line of David, who's going to inherit the nations and whose kingdom will never end. This is now starting to help us make a little bit more sense of Jesus, right? Son of God, Son of Man, this forever King who will inherit the nations, whose kingdom will not end. And in order for us to really get our mind around this, okay, I know this is digging a little bit, but stick with me, we also have to understand this language of the Son, be, excuse me, the son being begotten, all right? He says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. What's that about? What's that about? Because listen, we have to understand that the father-son relationship of God the father and God the son is not the same at all as a human father and a human son, all right? So let's understand this word begotten, okay? Okay. First, you need to understand that this English word, begotten, is a different word than when we see John use it when he writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's probably the more famous use of begotten, all right, in the English language. The word begotten in John is different in the original language than this word begotten, all right? I know we're getting technical. I've just a few more minutes of the the technical stuff, okay? So John's word for begotten is more describing Jesus as being one of a kind, all right? Neither one are describing Jesus being a created being. Neither one is describing Jesus being birthed or or, or brought from God the Father. No, when John uses the word begotten, he's talking about Jesus being one of a kind. He's unique. He's in a class of his own in his relationship with the Father. And that is certainly true of Jesus being the only begotten Son. But this begotten here in Psalm 2 and in Hebrews 1 is something different, and it's getting at the idea of bringing forth or revealing, okay? But it's not referencing Jesus being created or birthed or anything like that, uh, because Jesus has always been the eternal, capital S, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, But in order for us to really understand and dig in and see the connection, we need to understand how Psalm 2 is used elsewhere in the New Testament, okay? And so we see that it's quoted in Acts 13, and we see that it's not referring to the birth of Jesus or the heretical notion that Jesus is a created being. But no, this today I have begotten you language is instead referring to the resurrection and to the ascension to the throne. All right, Romans 1, we'll have this up on the screen. Romans 1, verse 4, and says, And was declared, speaking of Jesus, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. By what? By his resurrection from the dead. Okay, And so this, today I have begotten you language, what it is describing is a bringing forth or a revealing of who God's anointed forever king was going to be. And it was after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the throne that it was revealed to all of us as well as to the angelic beings that this Jesus is the anointed king, the son of God, the son of man that would establish a kingdom forever. This forever king is Jesus who had put on flesh and was fully God and fully man and he gave himself up to die in our place and then he resurrected and he ascended back to the throne. Here are these words that Paul writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 19, he writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. There's that idea of the name, right? The idea that he's inherited a higher name is he has this higher authority and power and status, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And church, it was his resurrection and his ascension where he was brought forth and begotten as the messianic forever king. And so this language of you are my son, today I have begotten you is describing the inauguration of King Jesus who now reigns over the nations. Jesus Christ, the capital S, Son of God, is now King of kings and Lord of lords. The nations don't belong to other spiritual beings. They don't belong to Satan. They don't belong to demons. They don't belong to any other rulers or principalities or thrones or dominions. They belong to Jesus right now. He has a name that he has inherited, son of God, king of kings, that is more excellent than any other being. It's a name that is more excellent because it is signifying his status of authority is higher than any other. Now, I know we kind of got technical there, but those are some— I wanted you to kind of see how we are to to use Hebrews to understand the Old Testament, right? So when we see quotations, I want you to go back and read the Old Testament passage— I then want you to go see how else the New Testament authors use that Old Testament passage, and that will help us construct and understand what God's word is teaching us, okay? That Jesus, the name that he has, it makes him king right now. And if Jesus is king right now, then not only is he the creator of the angelic host, but he's also the commander of them as well. All right. And so let me let me share with you guys a story of John G. Patton, uh, because he knew this and he experienced this firsthand that not only is Jesus sitting on the throne as king, but he's also commanding the angelic host. He's also sending powerful help to us. You see, John Patton was a missionary to a group of islands uh, close to Papua New Guinea in the South Pacific. And back in the 1800s, him and his wife went to this group of people and went to this group of islands to proclaim the good news that Jesus is king. Now, soon after arriving on the island, they found their hut surrounded in the middle of of the night by a group of local cannibals who intended to kill them and do them harm and, I imagine, then do what cannibals do. And you can imagine, think about being in this hut in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, you can imagine the terror that him and his wife would have felt as these local uh, people groups are surrounding them and yelling at them and they know they're going to do them harm and they're right outside of the door and all him and his wife could do was just to drop on their knees and pray. And as they prayed, They noticed the yells and the screams of the cannibals get quieter and quieter. And the longer they prayed, it got silenter and silenter until it was completely silent and morning came and they opened the door and no one was there. A year later, the chief of the tribe comes to Christ and he's talking with John. And John's like, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here. John's like, hey, no hard feelings, but uh, you remember that one night? Uh, That was pretty crazy, right? And he's like, so, hey, what, what happened there? Like, why didn't you kill us? Why didn't you come get us? And the chief looked at him with just terror in his eyes. And he said, because of all those men who were with you. And Patton's like, there was no men. There was just me and my wife. We were scared to death. We were in the middle of our hut. We were praying. And the chief said, no, 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 no. There were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house. We could not attack you. That's amazing. Like Jesus sits on the throne right now over the South Pacific and he sends powerful help to his people right now. I think John Patton could bear witness to what Hebrews 1 verse 14 says, that it is true. So skip down to verse 14 in Hebrews 1. Speaking of angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels. Guys, angels are amazing. And so let's, let's try to understand them a little bit more so that we can really see how glorious Christ is. All right? So angels, they were, they were created and they were commanded to do a few things, okay? One of those is to protect us and deliver us from danger. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And we see this time after time in the Bible. We see multiple examples of this. We see uh, angels rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed. We see one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is uh, Elisha and his servant are delivered from the king of Syria, uh, which is a really cool scene, all right? And I'll read it from 2 Kings, 2 Kings 6, verse 15 and 17. Elisha and his servant, they're surrounded by the king of Syria and their, their armies. It says, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Right? I mean, they're surrounded, the enemy, evil, all around them like destruction only awaits them. And 2 Kings 6 verse 16 should probably be one of our most favorite Bible verses in all the Bible. Verse 16, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, "Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wouldn't that be so cool to have our eyes opened to see these angelic beings, this angelic army that God had sent to protect and deliver his people. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Oh, if only the Lord would open up our eyes to see this. If only we had eyes to see this when we come upon evil in the world. Maybe we would not become so easily afraid or so easily anxious if we knew that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Maybe you need to quote yourself that verse before you turn on the evening news at night. (laughs) Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Angels are sent by Jesus to protect and deliver us from danger and evil. That's pretty amazing. We also see angels be amazing that they're sent to minister to people, like when they ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. We also see that angels, they were created to worship and praise God. Did you guys know that when we come together to worship God, we are not alone in our worship? we are also not like starting or initiating the worship, okay? This wasn't just like our idea we came up with, like, hey, let's start worshiping God. No, there are angelic beings right now that we cannot see who are worshiping God day and night, and when we worship, we are joining in with them. That's amazing. And here's here's a really important point then that we learn in our passage. Because we might hear some of these cool, amazing stories about angels. We might be so mesmerized by them, captivated by them, that we're tempted to really kind of glorify them or worship them, or even some people would, would pray to them. But Hebrews is like, no, these angels, they were created to worship God. Now, some have rebelled from that. Some do want you to worship them, but don't be fooled by those guys, all right? These celestial beings were created to worship God. Look back at Hebrews 1. He's going to say it, Hebrews 1, 6 and 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. All right, this is, again, another du- direct co- quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43, the Song of Moses, where Moses says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. Bow down to him, all gods. Now, that's lowercase g gods in our English language. The Bible doesn't teach pantheism, all right? There is no other being on the same level or with the same authority as our great God. And therefore, these angelic beings were created to worship our God. Then Hebrews quotes Psalm 104, speaking of these angels and how they serve him. In Hebrews 1, verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Right, These angels, they're almost like the wind in that they cannot many times be seen or be touched, right? But they're also like the wind in that they possess great power. Doesn't the wind possess some great power? right? I experienced some of this watching some live video footage of the place we're going to vacation next week being hit directly by a hurricane, right? It's awesome. That's a fun, fun way to spend the day, just watching that vacation destination just be pounded by this powerful wind, right? Angels, they do have power, and Jared in uh, Citigroup this week, he reminded me of one of these powerful stories in Second uh, Kings 19 we'll have up on the screen where it, it talks about that at night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Like that's that's not the cute little chubby baby with wings, all right? that That is some power. All right? That's some power. 185 Assyrians struck down. Right? So so it's not really accurate when you see a cute little sweet girl and say, "Oh, she's such an angel." Ah. Like if you see someone that has the power to strike down 185,000, then you could maybe say like, "Man, that's such an angel," right? Like that's what an angel's like. An angel's has some power. They're intimidating at times. And uh, angels, not only are they like the wind where you can't see them and they're powerful, but they're also like fire and there's fire associated with them. And typically in the Bible, when you see fire, it's, it's, uh, it's tied in with judgment or justice. And the angels, we do see them help the Lord carry out his judgment and justice in the world. When Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden because of their disobedience, what was placed at the entry point, a cherubim, was placed there with a flaming sword, right? Guarding the way to the tree of life. But these angels, even though they're so amazing, they are sent out ones. They are sent out by Jesus. And therefore, we should not desire to be too mesmerized with them or to dwell too much on them or to worship them or pray to them. But we should recognize that, hey, if these are powerful beings created by Jesus, commanded by Jesus, sent out by Jesus, I mean, how powerful must Jesus be? right? I mean, we talk about this a lot, that especially my generation, we've been taught about the love of God and the love of Jesus, which is such a beautiful truth. We need to keep preaching that. But many in my generation are stricken with anxiety and fear because, yes, we know Jesus loves us. We're just not sure if he's powerful enough to do anything about it. But listen, Jesus is powerful. And I know we sometimes, yes, we can see he's more powerful than human beings. But even these angelic beings, who are intimidating and powerful, God's word says Jesus is even more powerful. He created them, he commands them, and he sends them out. How great must the kingship of Jesus really be? How great is his kingdom? It it is all-encompassing, both the visible and the invisible world. And now in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, we're going to see what kind of king this Jesus, the Son of God, will be, and if this is ever going to change. So first, he quotes from Psalm 45. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, he says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here we see again the author emphasizing that Jesus, being the Son of God, that in fact means that he is God, okay? And of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And then he describes this reign of Jesus and that that his authority, it is going to be good and right. He will have a scepter of uprightness, right? Jesus is a king then who also loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And this is sometimes a foreign concept to us that Jesus, yes, does love and he does hate. And he does them both perfectly. Uh, We often do not do those perfectly. uh, And so oftentimes us hating things is probably not good because it's a lot of times motivated by selfish motives or unjust judgments. But if we are going to love as Jesus loves, we must learn to hate what he hates. And Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. We should have a hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Right? There there are certain ways that we are supposed to hate. The way of evil, pride, arrogance, the way of evil, perverted speech we should hate. We also then here in this quotation see that King Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, which in fact we share in this powerful anointing as well. And I love that the anointing of the Spirit here is, is referred to as the oil of gladness. Not the oil of grumpiness that you might get a vibe from some churches, not our church, right? But you'd think they'd been anointed by a different, different oil. Uh, but, but here, right, we are anointed. He calls it the oil of gladness. And we probably need to come back. I think we will come back and preach a standalone sermon just on this oil of gladness and what this is all about. But we don't have time today. Uh, Go go learn more on your own. Go uh, search. uh, Spurgeon has a sermon called Oil of Gladness. You can go read this week. But then our author goes into Psalm 102. All right, in verses 10 through 12, he goes to Psalm 102, and he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, and then here he goes to Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most... Most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right, here we see that Jesus is far superior to angels because he was the creator, he is the sustainer, and he will never change. He will not wear out. He laid the foundation of the earth. He stretched the heavens out in the sky. This creation will wear out. It will need to be be folded up and resurrected, just like what needs to happen with us, okay? This passage is not necessarily teaching that creation is going to all be annihilated or burned up, but that it will wear out. It will need to be recreated. It will need to be resurrected. It will need to be made new. Remember, it's been said of Jesus that he's, he's not making all new things. He's making all things new, right? He's making all things new. And he, like Psalm 110 says, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father in order to rule and reign. And he will reign until all his enemies are brought under his authority. He is the creator of both the visible and the invisible world and he is the commander of angels who some right now are worshiping him and some he has sent out to serve you and me. Now that's some powerful help. Jesus sitting on the throne, sending some powerful help. Most of the time we talk about the powerful helper, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends. And that's very true. That's a big help, right? But there's also some other powerful help here he sends. Hebrews 1.14, right? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's you and I. That's us who've put our faith in Christ, who are following Jesus. These ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of us who are to inherit salvation. Now that, that's pretty crazy. Uh, because I I can get my mind around like us, like we're supposed to serve them, right? If if me and a person in the room, like, and he's got like a flaming sword, I, I, I can get my mind around maybe serving him, right? But no, these angelic beings who are amazing and magnificent and glorious, who've got flaming swords at time. Jesus sends them to serve us. So what would, like, uh, what would life look like if you really believed that? W- what would life look like if you really believed that angels were amazing, that Jesus is better, and that he sends them out to help you and me? I think my life might look a little different. What, what decisions would be made differently if we really believe that, that Jesus sits on the throne and that he sends powerful help? How much more courageous and bold would we be with our church planting or our missions or our discipleship efforts? How much more energy and zeal would we have if it wasn't wasted on living in fear or anxiety? Like, like, how would life be different tomorrow if your eyes were open to see that Jesus sits on the throne, that he sends us some powerful help, and that the number that is with us is greater than the number of the enemy? I was talking with a man who had a pretty significant heart surgery. And it was a heart surgery that was, had, had a relatively high risk of him not surviving it. And so he was understandably a bit fearful and anxious about it. But he said a really comforting thing happened as he was getting put to sleep and as he then uh, woke up. And maybe this was the medication, all right? I, I don't know, but I don't think he was trying to sell me a book or anything like that, so I think his motives were good. Maybe it was the medication, but he said a really comforting thing happened as he looked up to the corner of the room. He saw this huge... Muscular creature with wings that he knew he should be afraid of, but he actually was comforted by because he knew he was on his team. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, maybe you're, maybe you're a little skeptical of that. Maybe you think it was the meds, all right? Maybe you think angels only show up when cannibals are involved. Uh, w- what about this? What about a Norwegian missionary, Marie Monson? She served in North China in the early 1900s. And at one point, her mission compound was surrounded by soldiers who were coming to loot the compound and kill everyone involved. However, as the soldiers got close to the building, they all ended up taking off in other directions, yelling and screaming in fear. Later on, one of those soldiers comes to Christ as usually, this is how this usually plays out, right? One of those soldiers comes to Christ and talks to the missionaries, and they ask, hey, what happened? Why didn't you come in and do what you were planning to do? And the soldier said, once the building was surrounded, they all of a sudden saw hundreds of tall soldiers with shining faces marching on the roof. And they took off. Hebrews fourteen are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, maybe you're still skeptical. Maybe you think, nah, that's just medications. That's just the South Pacific. That's just China. All right. Here we go. I came ready for some pushback. All right. 1956, Kenya. All right. During the Mau Mau uh, uprisings, a band of rebel soldiers had annihilated a village of 300. They had killed men, women and children, and then they set their sights on Rift Valley Academy, which was a private school full of missionary children. The school then was surrounded by these rebel soldiers. They had spears, they had bow and arrows, they had clubs, torches. They were shouting curses at those inside of the school. And then at one point, they all retreated to the jungle, (laughs) screaming for their lives. And they were eventually captured by the government. And when the leader was put on trial... He actually, I don't think, came to Christ, but he was captured and put on trial, and during the trial, he was questioned why he didn't attack the school, and the leader said, and I quote, We were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in school, but as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords, and we became afraid and ran to hide. (laughs) What about in the 1920s? This is my last one, I think. In 1920s, in South America, Dr. Clyde Taylor and Charlie Marstaller, they were taking the gospel to a tribe in the jungle, and they had come, uh, uh, some of the tribal group had come with 40 men and surrounded their hut and meant to do them harm. Only then the same thing to happen for them to take off and run away into the jungle. Well, the leader of that tribe did come to Christ eventually, And he asked uh, the leader what happened that night. And he said, I remember that night. There were 44 of us, and we were coming to set fire to your hut. When we got there and surrounded the hut, we realized we could not attack because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing all around your hut and even on the roof. And then I love this. He said, that is why I am a Christian now. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, that's a good... I mean yeah, you should be, right? Hebrews 1:14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Church angels are amazing. But Jesus is better. <laughs> He is greater. He's more superior to them. He has a more excellent name, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has been inaugurated into this forever kingdom and whose kingdom will last eternally and it will always be good and it will always be an unchanging kingdom. And he sits on the throne and he sends to us some powerful help. Again, let me ask you these questions as I'm closing. Like, what would it look like if you really believed this? If you really believed that angels are amazing, but that Jesus is better and he sits on the throne and he sends them to help you and me? What decisions would we make differently as individuals and as a church if we really believed this? How much more courageous and bold would we be with our church planting efforts and with our overseas missions efforts and our discipleship efforts? How much more energy would we have if it was not wasted on being so fearful and so anxious? And if our eyes were only open to see that, that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Angels are amazing. Jesus is better Therefore, church, we should not fear because Jesus sits on the throne and he sends us some powerful help. So let's pray.